Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 1990, in Pushkin Square in Moscow, 30,000 people queued for hours for a taste of the West. The first McDonald's had arrived in Russia, sweeping the Iron Curtain aside with Big Macs and milkshakes. But yesterday, branches of McDonald's across Russia had shut up shop again. Ever since Putin began his invasion of Ukraine, life in Russia has changed dramatically. The Russian economy is set for a freefall. Today, uh, all Russians woke up to the announcement by Visa and MasterCard that their yeah. cards won't be legal in Russia very soon. Stores are shutting. The Moscow Stock Exchange suspended trading for another day. The ruble is in freefall. The economy is shrinking. And Western brands and companies have pulled out. And now, voices that don't support the war are being silenced. Russians who are brave enough to protest on the streets are being arrested, while others are leaving the country en masse. I'm gonna, I don't know, run, run somewhere between the borders, or I, I'm gonna figure out some, some, somehow how to, how to go away. I feel that there won't be any happiness in the Russian Federation for a long time. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, The View from Russia. My name is Asya Fuchs. I'm a producer for Stories of Our Times. I was born in Russia, but I grew up in the States. When the war broke out, my Facebook and Instagram feed were full of Russians saying the same thing. I'm ashamed. And no to war. Now, these posts condemning the war, I have to admit, aren't representative of all Russians who broadly support the regime. It was a few days of just walking around in a stupor, working on the podcast about the war, listening to the news about the war, seemingly endless, non-stop conversations with family in Russia and abroad about the war. A little over two weeks ago, before it all began, I started reaching out to people I knew in Russia. There'd been rumors that Putin was going to invade Ukraine for months. I asked people to send me voice notes. 
The first couple were from February 19th, five days before the invasion. At that point, war still seemed impossible. In Russia, it was hyped up as Western hysteria and paranoia. Okay, my name is Sergey Lee. I'm 42 years old. I was born and I still live in Russia. Uh, about the situation of the war, of Russian war against uh, Ukraine, it has absolutely no sense. And uh, I don't know if it's about all Russians, but most Russians do understand that there is absolutely no sense for Russian Federation to attack the Ukraine. My name is Ksenia. Uh, what I feel about the perspective Russia's invasion to Ukraine? Well, I think that it is just propaganda of foreign media. And it is far from the truth. I'm pretty sure that Russia is not interested in any military actions just beside its borders, and our government will do its best to prevent them. However, it is not so easy in the current circumstances when there are so many provocations that come from some foreign political powers. Well, like uh, sending weapons to Ukraine. I've just been listening to the online uh, Security Council meeting uh, of Russian Federation. That's Sergei again on the 21st of February, the day Putin made a speech recognizing the self-proclaimed republics in Donetsk and Lugansk. At this moment, it smells like war. It smells like we are going to protect the Donetsk and Donbass republics. Uh, if we accept their independence, then we might have a right to help them. Three days later, and the country was now at war. My name is Alexander. Sorry for my bad English. Today is the worst day of my life. My country started a war. This can never be fixed. This shame is now forever with us. I didn't really expect that it would have come to that. Really. I was so upset to listen the news today in the morning. Uh, I just I just believe that our government knows what it does. And it is uh, the only way that left for us to protect our uh, our people, uh, our uh, our borders and to save uh, the sovereignty of Russia. My name is Anastasia. I'm 40 years old. I'm deeply shocked at this horrible news. My 20-year-old son even cried this morning because he's really afraid of war. We are extremely ashamed of our government and its decisions. Well, uh, the reaction should have been shock, but it was not shock. It was something different. It was the impression that I knew it would happen, that I knew that our government is capable of doing cruel things, but we thought it was too self-destructive for Russia, not even for the uh, Ukraine. 
self-destructive for Russia because Russia is the master of self-destruction, of killing their own people and destroying their own country. While most people who sent me voice notes were anti-war and anti-Putin, the majority of the country, including some members of my family, support their president and his war, but they were reluctant to talk to Western media about it. I reached out to Sergei again after the invasion was in full swing, but he didn't want to talk about it anymore. He said it was too complicated. Alex, who'd said it was the worst day of his life, and Anna from St. Petersburg have now left Russia. So has my own dad. He says he'll go back when the dictator is gone. Last week, on the 3rd of March, Russia's last independent TV channel, Dost, or TV Rain, went off air after the state regulator said it was inciting extremism and causing mass disruption of public calm. In their last broadcast, two hosts surrounded by their news team, maybe a couple dozen people, they look tired and ashen face. They say, no to war. Then everyone starts filing off screen to the left, slowly and silently. The camera follows them to the exit door. One of the hosts raises his hand and punches the air a couple times. And then, it's just an empty newsroom. After a few seconds, it cuts to footage from Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake. It was the performance that aired on Soviet TV in 1991, during the attempted coup against Gorbachev. It was the end. I have a souvenir postcard with piece of uh, Berlin Wall at home. I remember how happy I was when Berlin Wall came down and then the Soviet Union, and had hoped that my native Karelia would become part of the big free world. But today I see how all my former hopes have collapsed into pieces as small as this part of this Berlin Wall. All independent press has been destroyed. The Russian authorities forbid calling a war a war. Now more than ever, I understand the words of George Orwell. Freedom is ability to say that twice two is four. But I don't want to leave Karelia even now, because I have not yet done everything I could to stop this war. Something needs to be done until the new Berlin Wall completely hides us from the other world. Hello, I'm Nastya, and I work in theater. The majority of theaters in Russia are financed by the government, and that's why my colleagues, they have to pretend that nothing special happens. Working in theater now is like playing in the orchestra on Titanic. Like playing the orchestra on the Titanic. Hi, my name's Owen Matthews. I'm The Spectator magazine's Russia correspondent. I first went to Russia in 1995 and worked for the Moscow Times. And I spent most of my career working in and writing about Russia. Owen, up until even a few days ago, you know, you were determined not to leave Russia. This has been your home for, for many, many years. On Saturday, you did. Why was that? What finally made you think you had to get out? 
I should have known, having spent most of my life and career uh, covering conflicts, that when things fall apart, they fall apart very quickly indeed. Actually, the tipping point was when one of my most sensible and level-headed friends, a very distinguished foreign correspondent, the last person you would expect to panic, he's been in Moscow for close on 30 years, when this friend of mine called me and said, you need to get the hell out of there. I realized that actually I had been really far too complacent and insouciant because things moved very, very quickly indeed last week. Things just fell apart. And then the aviation started shutting down. Our plane turned out, it was in fact one of the very last, it was the penultimate flight, in fact, of Turkish Airlines from Moscow to Istanbul before all Russian airlines announced that they were not going to be flying outside Russia anymore. I mean, what was that like, getting on one of the last flights? Well, fortunately, people didn't actually know it was the penultimate flight. So the empty airport, Vnukova Airport, is completely empty, except for basically one stand, which is Turkish Airlines. And it was a very, very full flight, at least 350 people on it, not a single seat free. On the eve of that flight, the seats have been going for economy one way for 1,700 euros. People were traveling with cats, dogs, enormous amounts of luggage. In fact, the, the person who was checking in in front of me had some boxes. He had three boxes on his trolley and said, you might want to go to the other stand. And he said, no, no, it's okay, three boxes. They're like, no, those boxes too. And he points to like a giant pile. He's checking in 20 huge boxes of stuff. And I said, what's all that? He said like, oh, it's my equipment from my office. It's my sort of technica, which I need to get out. And so, you know, people are leaving for a long time. In my reporting, I've always been rather careful to point out that all these tales of, you know, panic in Ikea and gigantic queues and everyone sort of fleeing for the exits. It's not everyone that's fleeing for the exits. To put it in terms of 1917, the Russian Revolution, it's sort of the officer class, you know, the bourgeoisie, is running for the exits. Everyone else, they're kind of very enthusiastic about what Putin is doing in Ukraine, and they speak for the majority, unfortunately. And in, in terms of the people who are quite supportive, is that because they believe the Putin line on the history of Ukraine and Russia and some sense of them belonging together? Well, that's exactly right. People want to believe. They want to believe something that makes them feel good about themselves, makes them feel special. I think they believe it not because they're especially gullible or especially stupid. I think it's, you know, the Trump Farage effect, actually. People are willfully blind to information that contradicts their point of view, and they much prefer to believe that their nation and their leader is doing something great and noble. They are saving the Ukrainians, their Russian-speaking brothers in Ukraine from a Nazi regime. And that's a beautiful lie, and they willfully buy into it. It's not a deception, it's a decision. And that psychological mechanism is really crucial to understanding Putinism. So amongst the contingent who have stayed behind, are there a lot of people who are worried about this war, who can't leave the country, but don't particularly want to be at war with Ukraine either? Well, I think people are profoundly disturbed by the fact that everything, and there's a lady, a friend of mine who I quote in the story in the Sunday Telegraph, that um, everything that we thought was ours, everything that we took for granted wasn't ours. It wasn't Russian. It was borrowed. And now it's been taken away. And we're left alone. 
as I said, things fall apart surprisingly quickly. I just was reading a list. I mean, it's a gigantic swathe of companies that are now pulling out of the Russian market. It's the private companies, it's their boycotts that are hurting as much, if not more, than national boycotts of SWIFT, for instance, which blocks international bank transfers. So, like, a friend of mine is a graphic designer. He has an Adobe account, which is registered in Russia. He can't use his Adobe program. He cannot work because Adobe is pulled out of Russia. You know, anyone who uses a Microsoft product. I'm just sort of little bits of the fabric of life, one by one, falling out, you know, falling apart. And that's, that's disturbing. I mean, obviously, it's not anything comparable to what's happening in Ukraine, obviously, where people literally, my friends are sitting in bomb shelters and, you know, worried where they're going to start starving and so on. I mean, but nonetheless, there is serious worry going through in Moscow. I mean, this is just, you know, week two, effectively, of some of these sanctions kicking in. Presumably, it's going to get much worse. Who do they blame? Because, you know, there's always a fear here with sanctions. Do they turn people against Putin and his regime, or do they turn them even further against the West? Well, that's an excellent question, because in fact, actually, um, I did indeed go to the Goom department store, which is a giant pre-revolutionary shopping mall, which runs the entire length of Red Square, and it's full of luxury shops. And I chatted to some of the customers and shop assistants, and basically the mood was sort of defiance and anger at the West. It's fine. If you don't need our money, then you can you can sod right off. It was just anger that the West is punishing Russia. And in fact, that's been the message of the Kremlin propagandists like Vladimir Solovyov. То есть это разрыв полнейший. А те санкции, которые они применяют по отношению к нам, они сравнимы с санкциями против Венесуэлы или Ирана. We will get through this because we are strong, because we are Russians. We've faced worse crises than this in the past. And, you know, let's all tighten our belts for the good of the motherland. It's a tiny sacrifice to make for ridding the world of Nazism. It does seem like some of the the support for the war is solidifying. I mean, we've started seeing a lot of people wearing the letter Z, for example. Talk us through that. What exactly does that stand for? Well, in fact, it's it's something of a mystery, exactly who thought of it. But very clearly what it stands for is because in a conflict where both sides are using the same Soviet and post-Soviet military technology and tanks and armoured personnel carriers and wearing very similar uniforms, you have to distinguish them for the purposes of airstrikes. So the Russians, when they were lining up on the borders, painted very large Zs on the sides and roofs of their vehicles so they wouldn't get bombed by their own side because their vehicles are exactly the same as the Ukrainians' vehicles. And the um, Z, in fact, has been adopted by pro-Putinites as ZA. I am for it. ZA. I, I am for the uh-huh. war. So actually people have started appearing indeed on the streets of Moscow. T-shirts are now available to buy with that, you know, painted Z and a printed A, ZA. Coming up, for the anti-war minority, what does resistance in Russia look like? And what kind of a country will Russia be when this war is over? But first... I'm Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 
that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For people who are still in Russia, who are turning on state TV, you know, what are they likely to be seeing and hearing? It's exhausting. It's it's like radiation. It's actually really bad for your soul and your mind to listen to all of this. Basically, certainly in the first few days of the war, the entertainment programs were off and they were replaced by these marathon TV talk shows. And it's a very Russian phenomenon. In fact, as it happens, for a couple of years, I used to go on them all the time. The format is you have six people or a few people in the television studio with an audience Everyone used to disagree, or I used to disagree with the other five people. They used to like shout at me, I used to shout at them. But now there's no disagreement. It's like a marathon of hate. The propaganda message I mentioned earlier is that we're fighting fascism, we're fighting Nazism, and we're saving the Ukrainians from their awful fascist government. And the technique in which they're communicating this is these shouting matches. Хронологически, что было сначала? Вы спросите Нет, это? это... Не это вранье. Нет, вы там это были? Вы там не были? Я вы поезжаете? Now, very interestingly, on the news itself, for the first five days of the war, there was no actual sort of battlefield footage. So the Kremlin was 
basically denying that there was a war. In fact, it's actually illegal for the Russian media to describe it as a war or an invasion. Those two words have been made illegal. Talk about doublespeak. Wow. And they, um, it's described as a limited military operation. That's the correct legally sanctioned term for what's going on. And it was only when the defense ministry on day six or seven finally admitted that they'd lost just under 500 people in the field. And you start getting some footage of military operations of how fantastically well it's going. In order to find the images that have shocked Western readers so profoundly about dead civilians and captured Russian soldiers, you have to actually get online and go to a foreign media source to find it because no Russian media source is allowed to publish that stuff on pain of 15 years in prison. And I I think, and my Russian journalist colleagues think, that this time they really mean it. I mean, that's terrifying. And we know that in the last fortnight they've also blocked access to Facebook and other social media outlets. I mean, how easy is it for people in Russia now to be able to get news from outside? Well, that's a very crucial question. If you know what a VPN is, it's a thing that you install on your phone or computer. It allows you to pretend that your internet address is other than Russia, and it allows you to sort of get around that block. But in order to do that, you need to be somewhat tech-savvy, or in the case of many of my friends, be the yeah. parent of some tech-savvy <laughs> teenagers. But uh, but you know, basically, for the majority of Russians, Facebook being blocked means it's blocked. You know, the number of people who actually want to go to the effort of downloading this stuff. And furthermore, it's actually become dangerous because already for some years now, posting on Facebook has actually been essentially criminalized. Even before 2014, people were imprisoned for things that they had posted on Facebook. They were even punished for liking things and sharing things on Facebook and Twitter. So even if they are on Facebook, many Russians would think twice about publicly posting on Facebook. In fact, lots of people that I know have set up anonymous profiles. In other words, they let their friends know that they're now Mickey Mouse 221 or whatever, but they're not actually there under their own names because they're afraid. And Owen, what should we make of the pictures we're seeing of protests that have been happening on the streets? We hear that 4,000 people have been arrested. How widespread are the protests and how risky is that? It's insanely risky, Manveen. I myself went to a couple of protests which basically barely got off the ground. Anyone who goes out is A, insanely brave and B, Mm. basically insane, sadly, because it's so dangerous and the police are so violent. The machine of repression is so efficient. My 19-year-old son has been in Moscow working on his gap year. He's been working as an associate producer in a theatre. All of his friends are on WhatsApp groups. They started going to protests and you show up at Pushkin Square at the appointed time and the centre of Pushkin Square has been fenced off so you actually can't get to it. And all the pavements around Pushkin Square, there are groups of policemen, but not just policemen, like paramilitary policemen. They're wearing urban camo, they're wearing body armour, they're wearing motorcycle-style helmets, which is why the youth call them kosmonauty, which means astronauts. And they, they are literally positioned like chessmen every five yards. You know, three there, three there, three there, three there, three there. And there's thousands of them. Literally, there's like police vans parked like up the boulevard in one direction, up the boulevard the other. There are literally thousands of them. And at every protest that we've seen, the protesters have been outnumbered by the police by a considerable degree. So just think about that. Like literally there have been far, far more cops than protesters. The protesters are extraordinarily brave. And actually, it's the one sort of redeeming thing about 
what's happened in Russia is that people, a few people have been brave enough. But you have to be very, very, very bold. The Russian police is not about mass violence. It's sort of KGB style policing. It's about you personally. And the number of people that that my son knows, a number of them have had visits to their home in the night by policemen saying, you have been picked up by facial recognition cameras at protests. You know, you, you know, Ivan Ivanov, you know, have been spotted on such and such a date, such and such time in the legal process, and we're charging you. It's, it's, it's very scary. Whether you're arrested at home or whether you're arrested at the protest, first time, it's a fine. You have to sign a confession, £120 fine and a criminal record. Second time you get arrested, it's 15 days. That's for participation in a legal meeting. There's another article in the criminal code, which is organization. If you organize a demonstration, it's three months. But it also could be treason because they updated the treason laws. And the penalty for that is 15 years in jail. There was a prayer meeting on day three of the war right near my apartment in Moscow. About 200 people gathered literally for a public prayer meeting outside the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour. And these 200 people were met by at least twice as many policemen. And everyone was grabbed off the street, including two of my son's friends who just got rounded up because they were just young and standing by and also made the terrible mistake of running. I always go to protest wearing a suit and tie. And I just try and look distinguished and grave and diplomatic-like or something like respectable. But if you're young and you run away from the police, then you know, you're screwed. It happened to two of my son's friends. I mean, Owen, I know it's an impossible question, but where does this end? I mean, for the people who are still in Russia, what sort of a country does it become in a few weeks, in, in a month? I mean, does it just become a pariah state? Well, Manveen, that is a difficult question to answer, but it is an absolutely essential question. One thing I've certainly learned, having confidently predicted that all of this war stuff was a bluff and having been completely wrong about that, I'm afraid I have to admit it, like I was did not expect this gigantic invasion. But also, as we know from many multiple reports, all of them anonymous, but they do concur that even at least half of Putin's cabinet did not know. At least half of Putin's cabinet were expecting a limited operation to occupy the LNR and DNR, the two breakaway republics of Donbass, even I happen to know on very good authority that the Russians were telling the Chinese, that's what the Chinese were expecting, is what half the cabinet was expecting, is what Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, was expecting. And nobody was expecting that full invasion, except apparently the CIA, who predicted it precisely. So all of that is to say that the old Putin that I've been writing about for 22 years has disappeared. He was a Putin who was extremely calculating, extremely good at playing both sides against the middle, divide and rule. He was always a brilliant tactician. And that Putin has now disappeared. And to answer your question, how does this end? I don't see militarily how this ends well for Putin. I don't really see any way in which he wins in the field. Because if he hasn't even surrounded Kiev after 11 days, he hasn't even surrounded Kharkov, which is, by the way, like 60 kilometers from the Russian border. He hasn't even surrounded Kharkov after 11 days. And if the Ukrainians are to be believed that they've lost 10,000, a lot of troops, how does this end? It ends in a this bloody stalemate. I, I, I frankly don't see any way in which he can win this except by unleashing extraordinary levels of destruction. I mean, it's been reported that between 20 and 25,000 Russians have now left. 
You know, you're part of that exodus. Tell us a bit about the sort of people who are leaving and why they feel like they have to get out. Well, it's very clearly a tale of two Russias. The people who are panicking are the people who have something to lose. They are people who have been used to living an international life. People who don't really engage with the outside world, either through its media or through economically in any way, they're the ones that have sort of gone full gung-ho patriotic. And if you do, as you say, sort of end up with two rushes, a lot of the intelligentsia, people who consume news from outside are leaving, and you sort of have people who are on message who are staying. I mean, that's quite hard to change in a generation. For you, flying out having been there so long. I mean, did it really feel like the end of something? Oh, yes, it really did. And I mean, of course, strangely, coincidentally, I literally just reviewed Helen Rappaport's brilliant book, After the Romanovs, which describes the exodus after the revolution. And I had no idea that literally two weeks later, I would be living precisely that. Like, I would be sitting, getting drunk with colleagues in a restaurant by the Bosphorus in Istanbul, where 102 years before, white Russians who were would have had the same conversations on the same streets in Istanbul, swapping stories, who got out, who stayed, where, where are you going to go, what are you going to do, you know, is there a job for you in New York, is there a job for you in Paris? You know, the history just has come full circle. Would you go back to, to live in Moscow under a different regime? I mean, do you see yourself going back and living there anytime soon? Yes, I'd be delighted to live in Moscow. Moscow is an incredibly great city. And, and it's, it's actually, strange enough, one of the most modern, livable, super up-to-date cities. It's very surprising to hear from many people. They think it's sort of, you know, grim and, you know, people queuing for potatoes and stuff. But actually, no, it's like full of extraordinary hipster bars. Everything is super functional. Everything from like food delivery to government services. It's super functional, super modern, great city. And it has nine Michelin-starred restaurants, by the way. It's very surprising that Moscow is a European city and a really fantastic place to be. The problem is that everything that has made it great and European has just had the plug pulled on it because of sanctions and because of all those Western companies that are nuts and bolts of modern European life have, have pulled out. So I would be very happy to go back. Some of the most brilliant and creative people that I know live in Moscow. And the, the question is, you know, my own personal security. What is the likelihood that I'm going to end up in jail? So that's the calculation that I have to make at this point. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and our brilliant producer, Asia Fuchs, as well as Sergei, Ksenia, Anastasia, Anna, Helen and Valerie, who sent us voice notes from Russia. And of course, Owen Matthews, a writer and journalist who worked in Russia for more than two decades until last weekend. For updates on the war in Ukraine, you can follow The Times' extensive coverage online and in the paper. This episode was produced by Asia Fuchs and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you found this episode useful, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.